how you been? It's been a while since we've just chatted. Yeah, right. Uh, I think I saw you at that uh, Final Fantasy. Oh, that's uh, right. Music thing, right, right. <laughs> that's right. The the or- the Final Fantasy. What the, what do they call it? Is it Worlds Collide still, or but the orchestra, the orchestra setup? I'm not, I'm not sure. My, my friend had one. Of my friend's dad had like free tickets, and he didn't want to go, so he just gave them to me. So it worked out. Dude, that was it, well, the funny thing was when you walked by, you had your mask on at first, right? And so I was like, mm-hmm. I was like looking. I'm like, I don't. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> and that was also the point where I hadn't been out much yet. So yeah, yeah, it was good times. That was a really cool show, though. Like I oh, really enjoyed really that. Cool, yeah, Same. yeah, yeah. A lot of people don't know we shared a classroom for quite a while when I was in yep. the classroom at Full Sail. So I look forward to talking about that as well. Distant Worlds. Yep, that's what it was called. Mm-hmm. It was the Final Fantasy VII remake version that we saw. It was it was good times. It was a lot of fun. That was my first time seeing uh, something like that. As far as like an orchestra that's game focused, something I always wanted to do. And I'm really glad I got to experience that. Yeah. I checked out some of the, uh, video games, live stuff that, uh, Tommy Tallarico was doing. Mm-hmm. He came to Orlando a couple of times to do that. Yeah. That was really neat too. Yeah. I always wanted to do that. I, I, he's not doing that anymore. Right. And I think I missed out. Not right now. I don't believe. Yeah. Yeah. But man, I'm uh, I'm excited to chat because we don't get a whole lot of indie developers on here so far, and they always get those questions, and I've never really been one, so a lot of those I can't answer. So I'm really looking forward to hearing your perspective. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not a thing that's as common for sure, obviously, right? But um, I think a lot of people don't realize there's it's another avenue. It's another decision you can make with your skills, you know, that you learn uh, trying to become a developer. I think like people only think about triple a games and there's some people who haven't even dipped their toe into indie they're like wait what's an indie game i don't what does that even mean you know and actually that that's a really that's a really good question you know i i think uh let's talk about that let's kick it off with that because i think when like you're right especially people who are like i want to make games someday they think about their favorite game their big game you know those kind of things and you know we grew up playing mostly AAA titles, right? You know, when we were younger, it was all console stuff. There wasn't an avenue much for, for indie type stuff. But now we're at a place where literally the tools are available to everyone and they are make it capable to make some really great stuff with small teams. Sure. But what's kind of funny too is like nowadays, one person could make what the whole AAA team was making back in like, you know, the 80s and 90s and things like that. Absolutely. That is that is definitely true. That's well, I mean, even back way back in the day, there was it started with like single programmers doing a lot of like the early Atari stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then we went into bigger, bigger, more people, and it kind of just blew up to where when I was at EA on Godfather, we had three hundred people on one game, and at the time, the biggest team I'd even heard of was seventy. So it was like mm-hmm. at that, it was just like exploding, and then then a few years later, it's like. Uh, Ubisoft has 2000 people on Assassin's Creed and it's just like, just keeps getting bigger and multiple studios together. So and it's, oh. it's really funny when we think about like the games from the eighties, think about the budget and the size of the team mm-hmm. and it's the, how they are now. And they're both $60, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Same price. That's true. That's true. Huh, that's actually uh, really interesting. And those people did not make the same kind of money, but we also didn't have the same mm-hmm. market share back then either, right? Like there weren't that many sure, consoles sure. out there, things like that. Right, right. So the industry itself has been a really interesting thing. And just the way that it's kind of grown and exploded over the years where, but now we're at a point where 
like we mentioned, small teams, individuals, you know, we've got some games up there that were made by a handful of people that are super like they're, they're great, right? Super immersive, a lot of fun. And, and I think one of the big, big things over time that people have kind of said is like indie means downgraded visuals, right? Like, I think that's kind of like the big thing. People think is like, it's not going to look good if it's indie, it's going to look great if it's triple a, what are your thoughts on that? So uh, I saw an article once on game developer, you know, pre-X Gama Sutra. Someone actually tried to classify them because they thought it is a weird kind of a nebulous term, right? Because in, in a way, technically someone said that like Steam or sorry, Valve is like the biggest indie company because they don't have all the shares are private, right? It's only the, the people who started it. Mm. And it's like, what would you consider Half-Life to be an indie game, right? So if someone wanted to structure it with like a different tiers kind of like you have triple a you know they had like a single a double or single i double i and like triple i i think it went up to like five and it was all based on like how much funding you had if you're just doing it in your your apartment with your friends or if you guys actually got you know um, venture capital or whatever like some investments and things like that um and i i think there is a broad spectrum and i don't know if it's fair to say like some is indie and some is not i, I would just say being able to do your own thing and not worrying about the shareholders or mm -hmm. not worrying about whether you're going to make a profit or not. The reason you're doing it is because you have this unique concept you wanted to get out. Usually it's some sort of unique gameplay, right? Yeah. Maybe it's a unique story, but I, I think it's kind of not worrying about the monetization and just doing the thing you want to do. And so um, that's more like the indie spirit because, you know, AAA, there's tons of talented people. I always tell that it's not like people in AAA don't want to make interesting new IPs, right. And learn breakthrough mechanics, but it's, they have time and budget. Those are like the two biggest problems. So everything comes down to time and budget. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's interesting because I think a lot about, you know, how with, with India, to me, what resonates is it's, there's two things. One is that it's creative control, right? Because when you get into AAA, you've got marketing, you've got publishing, you've got a lot of people that have, asks and needs out of that project and sometimes you know weighs heavily on the decisions that are made where you know with an indie title it's like it's the people that are making the game that make those decisions for the most part right i think that to me that's a, kind of a classification but then another thing you touched on which is like there's a lot more um groundbreaking or cool stuff i think happening at, at the foundational level in the indie space right you know you think of games like um like braid and things that you know have like cool mechanics that the whole game is built around that a triple a game and here's the other thing it's kind of in line with this is triple a titles tend to play it safer at times right like oh yeah they know what their audience is they're trying to hit a broader group whereas indie titles are often like you know what we're just going to do this cool thing and it's going to resonate with a group of people and that's the people that we're shooting for and you know and i don't I, I, I do understand why triple A's do it, right? Because they don't want to alienate their audience and be like, you know, hey, Assassin's Creed, but this time it's a Minecraft game, you know? It's, I mean, that would probably sell, but I think we can't just change everything and change it up on, on people. Like, they have to know what they're getting into. And yeah. so indie, I think it's more, we wanted to do this for the sake of doing it. And so hopefully it finds an audience. And usually there are people who want those new experiences. And, and sometimes I, I do think there are some indie games that are actually like community driven mm. where they'll, they'll very, they're very active with their audience, you know, whether it's on like a discord chat or a, a subreddit or something like that. And they're letting their, their potential fans or current fans uh, steer where the game is going. 
But then there's other yeah. people who just, their whole thing is I'm making this game. I'm hell bent on it and nothing's going to stop me. If it takes me 10 years to do it. Right. Well, and that, that's the other big cool part about indie, right? Is the, there's not shareholders that are telling you this thing has to ship at this particular time. You literally like now, and this is the, the double-edged sword with it, right? Like you have all the time that you want, right? There's no pressure generally, but that also means you've got all the time you want. So when is it going to get done? When are you going to be the person that that says I'm going to finish this thing, right? Because we as developers know we want to make it great. And especially if it's something that's your heart and soul and you're either alone or in a small group, you know that that reflects, or at least we feel like it reflects on us personally. So like, it's like you want it to be great when it gets out there. Yeah. My, my metric is always, when are you not ashamed for other people to see it? Right. right. Because <laughs> you could like, why does the game have to end? It's like you make it, you make 30 levels. The critique could be, why aren't there 35? You know, if you make a uh, two player multiplayer, it's like, well, you could do four player. Yep. Right? You, you could just keep going infinitely. It's just a matter of time where you say, this is pretty robust. There's not a lot of bugs or no bugs. Hopefully uh, that's not going to happen. But, um, <laughs> and then, I feel comfortable with people seeing this and having my name attached to it. Right. Yeah. And that, and I, and man, it's, it's tough though. Cause I'm, I'm not someone who is in like internally driven. Now that that's a weird thing to say. What I'm trying to say is without deadlines, I don't work as well. Like I work best under pressure. I work best under, you know, like trying to solve problems that, that have, real like urgency to them right in the indie space i feel like i wouldn't be the best because i i need those things i don't i don't, I don't work well with with deadlines i create for myself and so i i know i would struggle there sure um it's not for everyone right or what can be better is you have someone who's more of like the leader in that team who's going to take that initiative and dish out the uh the, what do you call it? The to-dos for everyone, you know, yeah. you, you can cover this, you cover this, I'm going to check in. Some people like more of that structure. Me, I find that that structure actually gets in the way mm. of me doing things because I want to, I'm someone where if I had nothing else to do, I would just be making a new game and working on a game. And it, it's kind of like having to check in with other people and having to um, make sure everyone is on the same page. It, it does slow me down sometimes, right? Um <laughs> And that there's there's good and bad for for each of those right because sometimes i just become this like zombie where i forget that hey i've been working 13 hours and i haven't eaten or stretched or anything like that <laughs> like you know i should do something else with my life but i also like the fact when i press the play button you know i can see that thing that i've been working on and it's interactable it's fun you know sometimes <laughs> hopefully like, hopefully yeah 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 so uh you have to be someone who's who's motivated to make that progress because with with indie it, it's really like no one's going to push you to do it right? yeah Unless maybe exactly a kickstarter that might be good if you're someone like where you need the deadline the kickstarter really kicks your ass right because you're like <laughs> uh oh people i heard nowadays was it we were we were, met someone the other day where like they were in danger of being sued because they were taking too long on their kickstarter now oh, i think they man. have legislation where you can actually have a class action lawsuit so i mean that'd be a real great way to motivate yourself to finish right. the game right <laughs> And that's, and, you know, and just to add to this for me personally, I've learned, been learning a lot about myself over the last few years, understanding now that I have ADHD and what that actually means for me. And this is a big part of that because that, that the reason that I didn't do super great in traditional high school and then did very well at full sale was the continual like deadlines and, you know, like 
every week there's something, every month you're done and you move on to the new thing. Like that flow is super good for me just intrinsically, which is why I've, I've done well in game dev overall. But man, if I had to, like, if that, if that structure and pressure didn't exist for me personally, it would be really tough. I'm not intrinsically motivated in that way without kind of knowing what my goal is and how I'm going to get there and knowing that when I'm done with that goal, there, there's a reason for that. Sure. Yeah. I, I, it's just, everyone has a different way of doing things. Just like everyone has a different way of learning. Right. Yeah, um, absolutely. For me, it's just always like, I have this idea of, I want to get to that thing. And no matter, sometimes I bite off more than I can chew, but then I sit there gnawing away at it and like, eventually I'll get there. You know, it, it, but it does kind of stress me out sometimes because I, I try and do something that's a little overly ambitious or my level of quality for what I view as good enough. You know, like good enough's not good enough. Yeah. It's like everything I want it to be good because I'm putting myself out there and putting my name out there. Um, and a lot of times when it when it comes down to the fact that, well, I feel sometimes you can over polish something, but there's also under polish, you know, I want it to be that, that range where like, okay, now it's nice, you know, not like yeah. it, it kind of works. It's like, yeah, but if we put one extra hour in, it'll look a lot better. Look, so let's just do that one extra hour. Like we won't really miss it. And then everything will be a lot better. Yeah. And that's, <clears throat> that, that's the part of it. That's great about indie development, right? Is the ability to course correct to, um, you know, make changes to put that extra polish in because ultimately your, your decisions are constantly, what's the best thing for the game? I'm going to do that thing, right? Mm-hmm. The bigger the team gets, the it's it becomes, that's the right thing, but that means this group has wasted work here, or this group isn't far enough along here, or they've done too much over here. And those it becomes a big discussion of like, well, there's a lot done on this already, and we like it, even though it's going to take extra work to get it where we want it to go. Let's go ahead with that. But then what does that mean for another part of the project where we no longer have the resources to do that? And because that's on a time and a schedule and the, the, the budget and all of that stuff. Right. So it's way easier to kind of course correct with a smaller team. Oh yeah. I mean, everything's easier, the smaller you get, right? Like my projects, luckily I've always been the sole coder on all my projects. I just have to work with artists or sound uh, audio people. Right. Yeah. And so it makes it so much easier because we're all in our own space. And sometimes we have to co-mingle to figure out the logistics of stuff, but it's like, I do all my stuff. I don't have to like log in and see all these changes. I'm like, what, what, what happened to my code? You know, like, why is it like, how do I use this stuff? Right. So I'm, I'm, uh, on top of it. Right. You know? Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, there's, I think there's pluses and minuses to both. And I think another thing that comes to mind when I think about the, the, dis, the distinction between the two is a bit of a, it's, it's, it's not a, a full truth, but there's the idea of security and, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people think that there's more security in, in bigger game studios and that there's, you know, <clears throat> like when you're doing an indie development, it's harder to be like, this is going to cover my bills, you know, that kind of, that kind of thought process. And what, what's been your experience with, with kind of that side of things? So the money is non-existent. Uh, I'm not doing it for the money. That's for sure. Uh, we could we can purity test me because uh, <laughs> I've made more this week than I've made in the last ten years with my indie development stuff. Really? Um, literally, yes. Uh, and and I, to to my detriment because like I, I don't think it's the quality of the the products. It's just what's happened and the nature of the markets that I've been going after. Like going after mobile is a really bad idea. Um, if you're especially if you're 
making a game that's either 99 cents or you don't have a lot of uh, in-app purchases and things mm. like that, right? It's, it's really difficult to, as a small team, unless you're spending a whole bunch of time like checking metrics and, you know, capturing whale, going whale hunting and things like that. Like it, if you're just like, Hey, I made a game. Does anyone want to buy it to support an indie dev? Like you're not going to find that, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, it, it's just, there's, there's a lot of saturation now. And, um, isn't it like 500 games a day or something show up on the indie market? Like it's some I absurd number or something like that. And it's like, I heard there's a metric on Google play. At least there's like 80% of them don't even get downloaded once. Wow. Um, because so many of them are to be fair, are like, they buy like an asset pack or like some tutorial and then they just reskin it, change the name and resubmit it, you know? So there's all this clutter of garbage. You have to find a way to make yours kind of stand out. Yeah. Well, what does that mean? How, how do you focus on standing out? Is that something in the game itself? Is it something in marketing? Is it something like where, where do you kind of look for that, that win? So as an indie, you have to just assume there's no, marketing at budget right so you have to find alternative ways to market whether you're good at social media which i don't claim to be but you, you <laughs> had some sort of following doing something else and then you can kind of show people what you've been working on in, in addition um or you have to um come up if you know to make the game kind of spread once it gets a little bit of a notoriety you have to find a like why are you making this game um and i tell people that a lot who want to get into indie it's like why are you, I, I call, sorry, back up. I call this a, but it's me syndrome. Mm. A lot of people in, in any independent stuff like music and games and movies, they're like, I'm making something that's heavily influenced by game X. I'm like, okay, so game X is also available on that app store. Why would I buy your game other than the fact that you made it and you want me to buy it? Right. So you have uh. to find some way to carve out, uh, like it's got a better mechanic. It's got, um, a better story or something. It has the, twist on that 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 uh formula you know what i mean but if it's just because i made the game and i want you to buy it instead of buying the competitor that has a bigger budget it's not really going to work right um, and, and sometimes people have that motivation i think they go about it in the wrong way where they're like because you know i love games and so when i make a game everyone's going to buy it but they forget that it's not your friends and your your relatives who are buying it it's it's or seeing it even it's going out there now into the the mainstream like literally that stream where ev you're you're not competing with every other game that's ever been created and so how does it fit in that pastiche right yeah man that's that's a tough one because like we man I, I think about this kind of thing a lot right because i i have a lot of friends in the industry just across the board and every time they do something i want to support it so i end up buying a lot of games that i don't get a chance to play because I want to support them, but then also don't have that opportunity. But, I, but I'm in a position where I can afford to do that, right? So I want to sure. do that. But that's not true for everybody, right? And so if I'm somebody who's sitting here with, you know, this X amount of money to spend every month, and I and I and that money is my enjoyment money, right? Like I want to buy things that I'm going to really enjoy and that kind of thing. That that can become a bit of a, you know, of a, of a what's the right word? Uh, well, at least a decision, right? Where I'm like, do I get the mm -hmm. thing that I really want or do I get the thing that helps me support my friend? That that can be tough. Sure. But I, I would say I always try and have people take a step back and kind of look at their spending habits with the rest of their life. Because I've done a lot of like raising awareness for indie economies, right? Mm -hmm. um, giving speeches and things like that. And, and people, 
they claim that they don't have the money, but then I look at other habits that they're doing. It's like, well, you're drinking alcohol at a bar instead of buying it at home, or the markup is incredible, right? Or you're you're buying the name brand thing when you could have bought the off brand thing. And so if you honestly, like I find with, with food and, and drink, people go all out, they go crazy, but then they're like, oh, now I don't have money for that 99 cent game. I'm like, if you really needed to, you could have eked out, you know, like I, I'm not telling you how to spend your money, but like, let's look at your, let's look at your habits. Right. And so, um, I would also say as, as being a gamer where your hobby is playing video games, we have the cheapest, like cost per hour. 100%. In any, in any hobby, you know what I mean? I, I know kids who play, who, um, their hobby is like, if you're, if you're in the cars, right. Buying like an air filter costs as much as like a triple A game sometimes. Yeah. And it's yeah. like how, how much, how many achievements do you get unlock with the air filter? Right. All right, I could we could have a whole episode <laughs> about spending habits because mm -hmm. ju just in general because I I'm someone that struggles with this at times and and ADHD is a big factor but like I'll have these rules that I've created for myself in my head, right? Where I'm like it's okay for me to spend money on this, but it's stressful to spend money on that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those rules don't make sense and it's because people don't always like really look at what their spending is, like you've mentioned, and kind of prioritize in the right places. And, or even understand where that money's going and why and what what the real benefit of that spending is doing for you. Right, and I, I've had to see that so many times because um, my background, I mean, we can talk maybe a little bit about it. Uh, when I went to Indy, I went homeless almost as well. Like I literally went broke. And so I was uh, learning how to eat on a eat and you know survive on a very very limited budget which by the way guys if you're students just go to Publix everything that's bogo that's what you're allowed to buy you're not allowed to buy anything that's not bogo it, it works trust <laughs> me um and and also hanging out with a bunch of musicians where musicians have very ridiculous lifestyles right where they're like oh I don't have the money for this and then you see they've always got a cigarette and beer in, in their hands right it's like all day long, all your money's going out to these like little vices. And then you, you claim to not have money to do things that you are impo more important for your, your day to day. Right. Like the big picture type stuff. Well, the, the thing you said though is more important. Right. And I think that's where perspective really matters because now sometimes, so when we're talking about cigarettes and addictive things, right? Like that, that that's tough, right? Because that's, that's something that's kind of lays outside of, of a choice. Cause if you're addicted to something, that cost is something that you kind of have to absorb, right? Or do something about, right? Mm -hmm. And we're just talking about your general spending and your choices. Like I think going to bars versus, you know, drinking at home is a really good example because you're, it's the same consumption, right? And it could be the same people, right? right. And you could do it much cheaper and, and realize like, Hey, if I go there and do it, it's costing me a hundred dollars. If I do it at home, it's costing me $40 with the same people. Right. right and that's, right. that's now enough for a triple A game, Right. Or, or a bunch of indie games. So like it, it, but that perspective is interesting for some people that, you know, for instance, let's talk about extreme extroverts, right? People that love being in crowds, love being out, love being around people. That, mm -hmm. that is a benefit to them to, in, you know, to go out and do that thing. So maybe that's not the place that they make that change. They look for other areas to make that change. So they have more income that they can be, uh, you know, more selective with. It's something with how games work nowadays because of the ecosystems where there's so many free-to-play games that they assume every other because that, that that model only works for certain types of games, right? But people see that and they're like, well, every game should be free. 
And so they're like, oh, your game actually costs money. I don't know if, I, if I'm going to buy that. How do I know your game is good? It might Ugh. be bad. And, and, and like, it's like, well, you've, you probably had a bad meal once, right? And you didn't stop going out to eat. You just kind of stayed away from that thing. It, it's, it's, and also for the amount of entertainment you get, right? Like I've had, because just like I said, being an indie dev, you get to, uh, especially for mobile, you get to see all the ridiculous like ways that people uh, classify your game or respond to your game. Like, like I saw a review on one of my 99 cent games, uh, the last days of space, by the way, uh, it said, uh, <laughs> it says game was only fun for a few hours, two stars. I'm like, Whoa, a few, hours for, a few hours for a dollar. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Like where else can I do that? Go, you, you know, the entry to, uh, I don't know. Like you go, I always use mini golf as the example. Like if you and your friends went to play mini golf, it's $15 a person. You got to drive there. You get one course. If you were to make a VR golf game for Steam that had one course for $15, you know you're going to get trash in the reviews, right? Yeah, nobody would buy that. That's a 99-cent game, right? Like <laughs> Right. But, but why is it it's the same action? You know what I mean? We can make the VR controller vibrate so it feels like you got tactile feedback, and yet everyone expects so much more from that. But they're like, oh, let's go play mini golf for 15 bucks," And then they come home, they're like, this rip-off. I'm going to write a bad review. Yeah, that's – man, individual ecosystems is – is a whole other topic that actually I need to write down because I think I need to have a whole episode on that. And, yeah. and honestly, I should probably have you come back for that because if we had some like different perspectives from different types of development, like because even within our own industry, the ecosystems are different, right? Mm -hmm. Because mobile and things that are free to play are very different expectations than games that come out at, at a, you know, from a triple a, you know, like, like something we build at insomniac, which comes out at, you know, that triple a price point. It's, you know, you're, you're coming in at, at 60 to $70 and there's an expectation there for the amount of content as well, which is completely different from something that you would spend 99 cents for. Sure. sure. But what happens is because this is a weird thing, games go to $0 eventually, right? Yeah. It's such a weird phenomenon because when you buy a game brand new, it's going to be have a couple bugs, right? Like, why is it six months later, now that they've got added a bunch of bug fixes, the game is half price? Right. It's like you're now getting a better product for less for less money, and it's because it part of it, unfortunately, because you know, once the software is created, it's like you technically can give it out, but the thing is, the consumer, the player, has to learn that this is a agreement between you and the company. It's mm -hmm. like they want to make you this awesome, compelling game, so you give them this money because they they purposely you know they set out at the beginning in hopes that they would make x amount of dollars that's why they made that game so ambitious or, or right. things like that so it, it's like you just have to know every time you buy that game you're helping to convince them to keep making more fixes for that game or to make spinoffs and stuff like that and so you know if you're kind of voting with your dollar Right. And so yep. if someone makes a great game and everyone says, oh, your game's great, but then no one's actually buying it. Or if it's a free game with some sort of in-app purchase and no one's converting, you can't keep doing it. And, and so a lot of these uh, fans of games are actually sabotaging projects that could have had more content to them because the person has to look at their bank account and go, oh, well, I'm not going to go broke to, to entertain some people. Right. Unfortunately, you know, I get really good reviews, but then I, I, I have to get a job. Right. Yeah, man, this this is a really interesting topic because I think I think this there's an impact from uh personality, individual personalities that is in play here as well. Where there's a couple things for me just just as the type of consumer I am where 
a new game comes out, if I'm excited for that game and it's a game I want to move to the top of my playlist, I will buy that game on day one and I will start playing it on day one and everything else will move down in my list, right? Now, but then there's there's other factors here too, right? Where where the frugal side of me knows that eventually that game is going to be cheaper. And if it's not the game I want to play right now, I can wait. And eventually it's mm-hmm. either going to come on sale or the game is going to lower its price overall. And there's so many other games that I have in my list that it's uh, that I'm okay waiting on that one a little bit, right? And so there becomes that bit of like, do I want to experience this right away? I'm afraid of spoilers, right? That I think that's one big thing for for getting into something quickly. And, and you know, and then ha- kind of how do I decide where that game fits? Because like, let's talk about Cyberpunk, right? That's a game I pre-ordered and was going to be my, this game moves to the top of my list. And it came out and it was so unplayable that it just, I had paid for it, paid full price. But to this day, I have not gone back to it. I've played like an hour of it. And that was because of, you know, like it was, I was incapable of playing it at the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, someday I'll get back uh, to it. I think uh, that was, that was my experience with Street Fighter five. Like it was so bare bones when it came out and then it became a really great game, but it's like, you had to just chill for like six months. But um, I think that uh, there's, there's definitely option paralysis nowadays, right? Mm-hmm. There's just so many games. Like you yeah. remember when in like the eighties and nineties, you know, games that were available to you, I think, I was really into video games and reading all the magazines. I probably knew every game that came out in North America, at least, you know yep. what I mean? Every year. And now it's like, I, I don't even know. I just check, I, I go on to like PlayStation, the, the store sometimes. I'm like, oh, what's that? It's got a cool picture. Click on it. Oh, yeah, sweet. man. I used to get Nintendo Power and Electronic Gaming Monthly just so I could find out things that were going to come out in the next two years because there were yeah. so few actual things coming out. And also being really into video games, but being very broke, I would like read up on games for consoles I didn't even have. And it's like, I knew all this stuff, even though I never played the game. I read the whole strategy guide. I'm like vicariously playing the game by like looking at the map and stuff. Same thing. I would make an uh, ordered list of games on a console I don't own and then ended up never owning because I wanted to make sure if I did, I knew what to buy first. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What a wild time. Or like, yeah, like kids nowadays have no idea about this stuff. It's like, imagine being friends with someone because they own a certain console. You know what I mean? It's like, Johnny's got the Sega Genesis. Wow. Yep. You go over there and play Road Rash or whatever. I grew up with, with a kid who had every single NES console game. Like, and when they, wow. his dad was a dentist. They did very well. Every game that came out, he had it. And it was just, it was amazing like it was just like well we know we can go over there and play that like all the time mm-hmm. i'm that dad now i'm just saying okay <laughs> well it's also so much easier now though it's like i don't need to, you to buy games dad i got 40 free games on every console every you know yeah. outlet i have yeah like Man. i'm from the era where i would be stuck at the bowling alley for three hours while my parents were bowling and i only had like two dollars I could spot when a game, what the game looked like when it had a credit in it from like a mile away. I'm like, yeah, oh, I'm playing the Simpsons run. right now, but there's a free game on Final Fight. I'm gonna run over there so I can, you know, have some more entertainment. <laughs> Dude, I had the same experience, but at ours it was they had uh, Dragon's Lair, which was like one of oh, my yeah. first like real cinematic arcade experiences. To this day, I love that game. That was the big one, and then there was the original Punch Out too, with like the oh yeah, the, you know the mesh fighter yeah. and everything on it. Like, man, that mm-hmm. was so cool. 
Dragon Dragon's Lair though is a quarter destroyer though, right? You oh. have to basically memorize the game. It's it, it's actually an error. example in terrible game design, right? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. it literally it completely teaches you through death, which is what today we teach you not to do as a designer. We don't want people to learn by death. We want mm -hmm. death to be something that's a, a step back and they they understand it wasn't the right way, but that shouldn't be how they're learning. I've got like that picture of his name is Dirk, right? Yep. Like turning into the skeleton. Yep. Like every time you die, just like burn into my brain. <laughs> Man, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So something's come up in the chat that I want to talk about a little bit, which is split screen. And mm -hmm. uh, like this is this is a way off topic, but couch co-op is a dying, dying form. And it makes me very sad because I grew up, my son Irish is in the chat. We we grew up, he grew up with us playing the Lego games and like anything I could find that was couch co-op. And oh. that, that is just really starting to die away. There's not many options for that. So I do know that, uh, a lot of indies actually do that for some reason. You know, that, that is a big thing in indie. Uh, if you look at all the competitive sport type things like, um, star wall, uh, what's that game? Regular human basketball. Um, regular human i haven't heard of stuff, that right oh it's a, that, that game's crazy it's i'm gonna really look cool. that up oh, <laughs> regular it's, it's awesome. human basketball yeah you gotta you gotta play it i used to use it in my class actually because okay it's it's got a really great reveal so i would put them in the game and not tell them anything about it and have them figure out what the game's about oh i remember this yeah 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 so i remember guys this made crawl it's like it's the guys who made crawl yeah which is another couch co-op game right all uh, right <laughs> So another another thing is uh, I know that Nintendo really likes that and um, which they should I can't say I can't say too much but I know that they we talk to them a little bit about Highlight Heroes or Throwback now and they like they love the fact that it's couch co op yeah that that's all I can talk I mean about. I that I yeah de yeah definitely don't talk about anything you can't but I will say traditionally Nintendo is is a family console right like they they care a lot about making sure that that kind of experience is good. Even back to like, you know, Mario galaxy with, you know, being able to have a second controller that kind of affects the world, even though it's not the person moving around. Mm -hmm. I love those experiences. I love anything that will allow us to get other people into the experience without them feeling, you know, overwhelmed with this big controller and lots of buttons and trying to make this thing happen. Sure. I um, was over at my, my friend's house um, well, by the way, I think someone called it once like kid brother mode or something where it's yeah. like you can have a <laughs> passive character that can't really do stuff and yep. Mario games do that. But I remember like some of those, it really, you learn how to be a gamer and you don't realize it. Like, so my friend has like a three-year-old daughter and like, she's trying to get into video games and I tried to play, um, Mario sunshine with her and she's really having trouble with the controls. And I'm like, the kids are dumb. And I, I still pick it up and I'm like, no, these are kind of Yeah actually for nintendo it takes it a lot of different things than like nuances about it like she would never be able to like i had to do a thing where i had to pick up a pineapple and throw it through a hoop and i'm like there's no way she would ever figure this out right. like it just it's so like so many different steps and you know refinements and stuff yeah it's we we've come a long way from you know nintendo with a couple of buttons and then to super nintendo with six buttons I think once we got past that, like like the modern controller, especially now that we we have back button options and all of this stuff, mm -hmm. it is a lot. Like for people that did not grow up with games, that is very very intimidating. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and like, remember the Atari had like one button on it, right? One. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's unbelievable. Like, and I get it. Like we, we want those options. And as a developer, you know, especially as I'm working on a game like Spider-Man two now, we would love to have more buttons. We want to, we're, we're even running out, right? Like we're like, we want to do this other thing and we've got nowhere to put that. Like that stuff happens all the time, but that doesn't mean that having more buttons makes it as accessible as it was before, because we've already got people that can't handle the, the buttons that we have. Sure. Um, I think there are unique ways that people have done more with less buttons. I've seen, um, one example I found the other day, uh, Turtles in Time. Mm-hmm. You remember the arcade? Oh, yeah, I was absolutely. And I was playing it, and I haven't played it since I became a developer, and now I'm thinking with my dev brain, and I'm like, this attack is genius, man. Like, if you check it out, like, there's, like, 13 different attacks you can do with the attack button, and it's all based on, like, the where you are. It's contextual. Right? Yeah. Uh, some of it is, like, when you, when you jump, the height of your jump will determine which move comes out. Yep. And then um, when you run, you can do like a somersault. If the sum, if the character's head is on the top, he'll do one move, and if his head is on the bottom, he'll do another move. And it's just like oh. that's awesome. And and like you know, it's subliminal. People don't really sit down there and break it down, but someone had to think of that, right? And so I was like, that, that's that person's thought process. We're like, we're gonna use one attack button and one jump button, and yet there's like, like I said, I think there's like thirteen or something different attacks. Well, I mean, so it, it's backwards though, right? Where at that time, they were like, we only have two buttons, right? Or whatever it was. Like, how are we, how can we, what can we do to get that, you know, that, that extra versatility out of, out of these, you know, limited number of buttons. And mm-hmm. I think you and I will agree that, you know, limitation is what brings about innovation for a designer, right? Like Definitely. when we, when we oh, have yeah. a, a box that we can't change, but an idea that we want to to get in there, that's that is what game development is for us in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Like I, in the old days, like it was really trying to push that hardware to do something crazy, right? Like if you look at some of the um, like what's it that like the Mickey Mouse game for for Genesis, and or even like uh, I want to say Castlevania Bloodlines or like Contra. What's the Contra one? They just did crazy stuff, just pushing that hardware, and they had to figure out ways to just like uh break the system you know what i mean like using things that they're not supposed to there was some game on i think it was playstation where they're they're writing to a buffer that they're not supposed to write so they could have more ram while they were running the game i think that was crash bandicoot or something like that but nowadays it's intimidating because with these new systems you can literally do whatever you want and now you don't have that constrained environment that co- that forces you to be more creative right like the most thrifty things it's like you, you notice how like the 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 clouds in mario are the bushes in mario right it's like those guys had to really think because every little bite counted right <laughs> yeah yeah it's man game development was so different back in the day right like and and it's it's become kind of this weird thing where like over time as we create tools and processes and engines that automate or make things that we used to have to struggle with easier the way we think about making games is different because now it's more of like what's the experience i want to create right i want to make this thing now how do i use the tools to make it instead of being like here's this limited set of tools what can i do within this right and and it it creates pros and cons right so it's so much easier to get up and get started but then people have less understanding of how everything works. Um, it's a lot easier for someone to show up and say, hey, I'm a developer too. 
And um, I know some people are, there's some people who are like, there's like communities where it's like, unless you build your game engine from scratch, you're not a game developer, right? Like, I, I don't agree with that, mm -mm. but like, <laughs> um, it's a bit of, bit of gatekeeping, right? But I think that to fully understand what's going on and understanding how everything is working, you have more control and therefore you can do more with, uh, with your systems. Um, and, and, you know, people are reacting. I, I think it's taking time for the, the gaming culture to catch up. Cause I've seen things where like, you know, if you're familiar with unreal engine, uh, you'll see like this, uh, I remember like Kotaku or something like that covered this game. And the headline was like, this game was made by two people in a weekend. And you look at it and it's got great graphics and they're talking about the graphics. But if you actually used unreal engine, that's like all the stock stuff that comes with a basic right. project. Right? right. And they're getting credit <laughs> for the, the tool. And you're like, yeah, they just opened a new project, bought a model off turbo squid and threw it in there. Like, but it looks great. To those who don't know, but it's hard to to ex to explain that out, right? And, yeah, um, I liked it. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, I was gonna say that's that's the uh, that that's the thing, right? Like when I talked about the the look of indie versus AAA, and, and when you talk about things, showing screenshots is the easy thing to do, right? Like it's really hard for us to describe why the gameplay is good about something. Way easier to be like, look at how great this looks. Mm -hmm. Visuals are always the first thing people see. And, and as a coder, especially as someone who's had to work in environments where the person in charge of uh, evaluating my performance isn't a coder, really frustrating because like, they would be like some sort of like subject matter expert or like a academic, right? Cause I used to work for uh, a university making serious games, like educational games. And if there wasn't any new artwork, but I made the game more efficient, the file size smaller, they would think I, I haven't done anything, right? <laughs> <laughs> right and all they would see is the the visual so my performance was tied to how if the artist did their deliverables or not right which is so frustrating because that's awful uh, yeah it, it's exactly exactly because it's really a thankless art right I've, people say that all the time but in a game right if you encounter one to two bugs in 10 minutes you're like this game is buggy but yeah. there's probably thirty thousand lines of code minimum that's for like a real small game uh that's doing everything right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Man, that's, uh, <laughs> that, that's one of the, the ultimately frustrating things as a developer is when somebody finds that edge case thing that, that we didn't have the time ability or whatever to come across. Mm -hmm. They do. And then suddenly that's all they talk about. It's like, yep. come on, man. Like, <laughs> like, like like point one percent of people are ever going to see this, and that's what you're you're kind of gauging the quality of this project on, <laughs> right? And because the, the, there's always so much more, you know. Um, there's I saw some quote that was like, "It's a miracle that a game works at all, right? That a game Dude, even exists." Hundred <laughs> percent. Like, if if people that like if people knew what really goes into this day to day, mm -hmm. it, it's it's absolutely mind-blowing like like the amount of coordination technology creativity like it is just it's a mammoth undertaking every time we do it like regardless of the size like like just getting something to work and be functional and be like taking your vision and, and making something that someone can put a controller in their hands and experience that that is a wild concept just at a basic level oh yeah and, and it's just so overlooked, I would say, right? Yeah. They don't realize that. Like, I love, um, I tell people, you know, that if you want to get into games, okay, 
great I want you to really pay attention to something in a game that you like. So like let's say someone's like like the UI. So I did something like the other day that did like a breakdown of like the UI in Street Fighter Five, where it's like, okay, so at the beginning, fight comes out, but it doesn't just come out. It grows a little bit, right? It fades in from the zero, the alpha is from zero, and it goes to two five five. Uh, it flashes. <laughs> There's a little flashing mechanic. There, the guy says fight. Um, one thing I found out by looking at it is actually the the UI bars, all the the health meters and the power meters, they actually go along to the beat of the music. So someone made a routine that finds the BPM of whichever song is playing and makes what? it play a little animation to the BPM. That's that's very cool too, man. There's just so much stuff in there, especially from the like usability side of things and the just mm-hmm. the, the, what what feels natural to someone when they're playing a game. And here's what I tell people is if you're playing a game and you're not complaining about the controls, you're not complaining about the experience overall and like how you interact with it, that means it was done well. Yeah, like exactly. doing your job well means no one complains, which is yep. such a weird concept. And then they don't go, this is great. They go, yeah, this is what I expect. Yep. From it, right. You know, and if it does break, if it's a mediocre job, they're like this is horrible and no one should ever play this or buy it. Right. Yep. <laughs> Which is also why, you know, editors like Unreal and Unity that take this stuff and figure out what's the baseline expectation and they kind of provide it. That that's that's why engines are getting so much better because then we don't have to spend our time just making this kind of standard piece of of content or usability or functionality that people are growing to expect. Definitely. And just having a whole company behind you, like working on it, listening to you, taking like, you know, uh, your, your feedback to make it better. Exactly. It frees up all that time. You don't have to worry. And there's even forums. So if other people have run into similar problems as you, it just makes it a lot uh, easier uh, yeah. to get into. But at the same time, it's like, I'm sure. What was the, what was the first system you worked on? Uh, like well, first the first console I shipped the game on was PS2. Yeah. So what were the build? What were the build times back then? Oh my gosh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't even remember. Not not quick. Like like hours. Hours. Right? hours. hours. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So and and you had no tools that visually allowed you nope. to line things up, right? Not Everything at all. Was in code, right? Yep. I tell my students that, like, I because when I first got in, I was using Cocos 2D, which was a 10 minute build time for the iPhone, mm-hmm. and they're like 10 minutes, and I'm like, guys, you don't know what it was like a couple of years prior to that, you know? Hours, Every, dude. Yeah. There were times where our lighting team would need to bake lighting, and it would take 24 hours, mm-hmm. like sure. just to bake something that would go in the game. So like the the time commitments from needed from your from your hardware, you and and this was just like in two thousand seven, so this isn't that long ago, right? Right. Yeah. Now you just press play. Like that's what got me into into Unity was like I I made eight games with Coco's two D, and then uh, someone showed me Unity. And I'm like, wait, so how do you compile to go? You press play and it's instantly available, and you have a visual you know interface. And I'm like, and before, if I had to make an Android build, I had to learn a whole nother engine, port the whole thing to Android. I'm like, how do you make an Android build in Unity? They're like, oh, you go up the top and you, you build it for Unity or for Android. You know, and then I was like, wow, I'm, that, I'm converted. You that know, is, I'm, I'm sold. I'm sold. <laughs> it's so different than it used to be. Like, it's just, it's mm-hmm. wild. Like, and that's like the tools and stuff that we have available today 
people just really have no idea. Imagine, oh yeah, imagine that everything you click a button to do today, instead you had to go figure out how to make happen. Like it's 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 mind blowing. Imagine to, to uh, play a sound, you had to tell the sound chip to oscillate at a certain frequency for a certain millisecond amount of time. You know. Yeah. I've I've done that just for fun sometimes. Um, I've used uh. I guess you could call them DAWs. No, they're called trackers, I guess. You could, making music in, uh, you know, on old systems, like chiptune type stuff. But I did one thing where to use make an NES song, I literally had to open Notepad, write out the, the value of the note, how long it's going to be played for, for at the entire composition, like writing for oh. all <laughs> three channels, you know what I mean? And then you, in, you inject it into a ROM, and then you open it in an emulator just to play it, right? And it's like such an old school, like, people don't, haven't seen that right it's just so crazy man it's <laughs> i want to i want to just quick mention that we've been talking for an hour and we have not yet even talked about like your <laughs> like your oh, career wow. so Oops. we no 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 that, is, <laughs> that, that was not a complaint it's just just uh basically just throwing out there that you're probably gonna have to come back on the show because sure. we've barely touched on the things i intended to touch on so it's been great though <laughs> All right, yeah, I'll do that. No problem. But all right, um, we are we are at the point where what I like to do right now, we're at the halfway point. I've got some questions that I like to call the dev round. And it's a series of questions for you. And then after we get through these, then we can kind of decide where we want to go from there. But the first okay. question, what is your favorite game of all time and why? All right, I've had this loaded up for a long time. Uh, Tetris Attack, also known as Panel de Pon, also known as Pokemon Puzzle League also known as Puzzle League DS. It's a game that's been uh, rebranded a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Yeah, I am. So I, I love that game because it's easy to get into, hard to master, right? It's like three buttons, D-pad, swap, well, two buttons, D-pad, swap, and then move up. And you can have such crazy uh, matches with you if you're with two people who actually know what they're doing. Like the, the, the most fun part was, at least for the Super Nintendo version, the, the game will actually bog down the Super Nintendo CPU and the game gets slow, right? And that just shows that you're having this like epic match. And like I used to play it uh, all the time uh, with, with some friends. Um, actually, it's kind of a funny story. Uh, the guy who created Discord, we used to, I was friends with his roommate and we'd be at his house to like three in the morning playing that all the time. Yeah. He's a full cell grad too, for those that don't know. Yep. Which is wild. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. Next question. And this is, I'm really curious to hear your answer about this one. When did you first feel like you had made it as a game dev? I'm still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's um, an okay answer. Because it's not that, because I have worked on other people's games that have shipped. I've shipped 18 titles myself. Just the fact that I haven't had... I'm not saying money isn't everything, right? But it... it lets you be established where it mm. gives you more time. It justifies putting more time into your stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. So for example, right now, a lot of my games are falling off of the app stores because I haven't updated them for the new, uh, operating systems. Ah. And I haven't really had the desire to do it just yet because the amount of time I'll put into it versus if I work on some other side project, right. Or contract work or something like that, I can't really justify it. Even right. though it's the thing that I'm passionate for, it just feels like I have to sideline that right now, you know? Yeah. 
I feel like once I have my my cabinet out, um, that will kind of make me feel a little bit more legit because like, oh, I have this big cabinet, like it's an arcade game, I can go to a, a arcade and play it. You know, that would that would really make me feel I did something. Yeah, thing finally, you know, and I can't wait to talk about that because that that's a big deal, and we we haven't even we haven't even gone down that road yet, so we got we still got yeah, so much to talk about. Time, you know? Yeah, we got so much yeah. to talk about. <laughs> sure. All right, what is your passion in game development? My passion uh, in game development it's 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 funny. I'm literally a, an idea guy, right? I think I have a good way of coming up with fresh ideas and spins on things, mm-hmm. um, finding a, a fresher way to introduce it to the audience or a fresher way to teach them something about um, the game's mechanics, um, and, and a little bit of, of passion about UI as well. Like I, I do enjoy, well, I'd say more UX, is how does the player know what they're doing, you know, player-facing information, things yeah. like that. Um, how do we introduce this mechanic? Do we keep it secret? And how do we hint that that mechanic is available to the player? I really like stuff like that. Um, like I'm not the biggest coding head, right? I, I code the, I always tell people I got good at coding as a means to an end. Like, cause I like being able to, you know, not have to use rely on somebody else to get my ideas into that game. All right. That totally makes sense. All right. What advice would you give to someone who's looking for their first job in the industry? First job in the industry, I would say, don't be picky because they always say the hardest part is getting your foot through the door. Yeah. Right? Uh, every entry level job requires that you've already shipped to uh, worked on two games that have shipped. So you have to find someone who's willing to give you a chance. Um, I would say you need to have a good attitude. Uh, there's a lot of things to learn in this field, right? You can never infinite. You could infinitely keep learning if you wanted. And so yeah. to think that you've learned enough and you're good enough, um, it's going to slow you down or at least eventually you'll become uh, irrelevant, right? You have to always be willing to adapt to new protocols, new versions of your software even. Um, what's another one I would say? Take a shower. Boy, did we bring uh, that up enough when we were <laughs> teaching together. Like, <laughs> oh, man. Um, that's... <laughs> it's funny because i i think i think the thing that that you kind of touched on there that always resonates with me is you got to always be learning in this industry and and that was the thing that that i i credit full self for was teaching me how to learn uh especially for this industry because like we're constantly tools are updating new processes are coming like everything is changing constantly and making you know, for making better games and you've got to be able to, to kind of adapt with that and, and move and keep moving in that direction. I would even say it's actually expected of you. Every job I've had that's either in, in the industry or tangential to it, they hire me for one skill set and they're like, okay, now learn this other skill set that's kind of the same. Yep. You know? Yeah. So they, they get some time. They don't expect you to know it, but you definitely have to just pick up, you know, tutorials and just start going. Yeah. Man, and I'm so bad at just kind of like absorbing knowledge. Like I have to, I have to be hands-on. I got to do it. So Mm -hmm. I'm much better. Like show me videos. Let me see the thing. Let me, let me, let me emulate what you're doing. I've got to ingrain it in myself that way. I I can't just read and and kind of absorb something. 
especially with code, man. Like, like the problem with people who are, and I, I found this being an, you know, an instructor for 10 years is like people who write books for code, they're coders, they're not right. teachers and they don't realize that they're talking way above your head. I, I tried to read a, I'll, I'll read a page like 40 times and I have like no idea what, what it's talking about. But yeah. then if I did it, if someone just showed it to me and in, in like, you know, my ID, I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I got it. Yep. It, it's so different. And that's, that we'll definitely also get a little further into teaching game development because that that is a a special skill. You know what I mean? Like it, there's getting presenting information in a way that people can absorb and then internalize is very different than just saying, "Here's how I did this thing." Right. All right. Next question. This one's my favorite one. All right. If you were born in 1870, what kind of job or career do you think you would have had? 1870. Trying to think like what was going on in 1870. Electricity was barely a thing, if that helps. Was there? (laughs) What type of music did we have? Was it still like, or like a classical music? I thought I'd be a musician of some kind. Okay. I mean, that's, that's, I I think that kind of covers, right? I mean, you're, you're definitely looking at, you know, analog musical instruments. Uh, I, I don't know if guitars were out yet, at least. I think they, they were. America yet. Well, I think guitars have be been. Guitarist. Yeah, I'd be a guitarist. That'd okay. Be... Yeah. All right. And that's another thing we haven't touched on yet is your music side. We got, dude, you're definitely going to have to come back on because we, no we, we have a whole yeah, bunch of other cool. stuff to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like All the right. whole format too. This is a cool show. It's, it's fun, right? Like, like I always tell people, this is my favorite night of the week. Cause I literally, I I'm sitting here drinking and, and hanging out with a friend. Like we're just talking right, about right. games. Like it's, it's great. Like I love it. All right. Now, what if you were born in 2070? What do you think you would do? We're now we're talking now, you know, 50 years into the future. What do you think the world's going to be like? And what kind of thing do you think you would kind of fit into? Okay. Uh, I would be a VR guitarist. <laughs> yeah, I, I think yeah. what I think what you're 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 keying in on here is that music is your first love, right? Like, well, if I had a choice, right? Yeah. yeah like, but if you could you make do. music, if you could make money doing music, would you? Yeah, I would. But that, you know, yeah. that's not something not an easy hand, thing. Something in the right? Other. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm gonna take this fourth shot here. And while I do that, my last question from the dev round is who would you recommend that I ask to come on the show? Hmm. That's a good one. I'm trying to think someone that you haven't had or say I've already had Karis, so you can't say her. (laughs) Unless she wants to come back on, which she's supposed to and never responded to me about. I'm just saying. I think she definitely should come on. That'd be, that'd be cool. Um, I'm going to I'm going to take a wild card and I'm going to say Reed Mosby. Oh, snap. Because we can see the uh the growth from, you know, student to industry guy to uh guy in the chat. <laughs> and what's wild is that's one of the the handful of people that I taught in the actual classroom. Like I was only in the classroom for like 6 to 9 months. A lot of it was like online teaching and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That that's a good uh it's a good, a yeah, good I'm, idea. I'm calling you out, Reed. Come on. I see you <laughs> making 
<laughs> Karis is Thanks. not happy that I called her out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, so we finished the dev round. That's good. Now, I think I think what I want to do is I want to back up. I want to go I want to go way back. Let's let's kind of start back with how you got into the industry. Cuz th this is generally where I kind of start the conversation and we kind of move from there. We've talked about some great stuff. We we've, we've hit there's, there's a lot of good stuff in here for indie development just in general. But I'm kind of curious where did you kind of first get your love for games and when did you decide that that you wanted to be involved in it? Um, I'm one of those dumb people who made a decision when they were a little kid what they wanted to do and tried to see, see it all the way through. Yeah. So um, I guess I didn't become like an astronaut, right? But uh, I did want to make video games um, very early when I saw, you know, I, I kind of remember like the first time I saw a game, I saw like Zelda 2 being played at like a daycare or something like that, right? And I was like just really drawn <laughs> to the whole thing. And then... Um, so I, I, I really into games and I thought that like everything about it was cool. And I was like, I want to get into that. And then later in my life, um, I started learning guitar and I was like, I want to be a musician. Um, and I followed that thing too. And then at one point when I got to high school, I started learning the different languages and I was like, I want to, you know, do something with language. And I, I've been, those are like the three things that I keep trying to work into my life, right? Uh, games, music, and, and, and language. And then uh, as far as like getting into the industry, right, you know, there were there were times I almost went to full sale um, really close. I took the tour. It was funny because when I started working there for like the next two years, I'd still get calls like, do you want to, you know, from enrollment? Like, hey, do you want to be a student? I'm like, I'm teaching here now. Right. Get me off this list. Right. Um, and uh, I went to DigiPen for like a summer course. If you guys know what that is, it's a school that uh, over in uh, Seattle. Redmond close to it used to be sponsored by Nintendo um I went there for like a couple of a two week course um I used to do a lot of like just homebrew stuff like cuz you know tools were a lot harder back in the day to find right I um what did I do I had to get like a hacked GameCube dev kit like a bootleg thing where mm -hmm. There was no way to, to check what I was doing. The way I would do, before I had graphics in the game that I was making, the way I would check debug, whether things went into code, I would make, I knew how to make the controller rumble. I figured out how to, which address would do that. So I just make the controller rumble different amounts. So I knew I was in certain loops, you know? Interesting. It's so wait, like really so like cutting my teeth, you know? What, what, what age are we talking here? Like when, when were you doing this kind of thing? Uh, oh, well, so if we go further back, I guess in the round, like, Early high school, ninth grade, I got RPG Maker, if you remember that software. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and me, and, me and a friend of mine, we were just working on our own game. Um, he was getting into coding as well. He, he got into, like, ROM hacking, where you actually learn how to open up a, a Nintendo game or Super Nintendo game and manipulate it. And so both of us together, uh, we did over, like, a summer, we did, like, this project where, because um, at that time I was already pretty pretty into learning Japanese. So he would hack a game that never came out in America. So for example, we did uh, Dragon Quest V for PS2. Uh, they actually did release it eventually um, in, in the States, but originally it wasn't. And so what we did was he found a way to pull all the text and dump it to like a, uh, a spreadsheet. And then I would just go in and I would translate each line and we just inject the English back into it. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, just like total like, you know, little leet hacker, hacksaw type stuff. 
you know that was which uh, dragon quest dragon quest 5 5 okay and it's funny because uh one of my friends was actually the other day i found out he was playing it he's like he's i'm playing this like fan translated dq5 ps2 i'm like really that, that's the thing i worked on man and he's like oh wow that's cool all right so let i want to talk about that a little bit um how, <laughs> how does someone get a hold of that and like you know what i mean like i okay so the i ever since i got into the industry i have kind of moved away from anything emulated anything like that right like where i'm like i'm just i'm gonna buy the things i can buy i'm no longer a poor student you know that kind of thing but now what we're talking about at least especially at that time was it wasn't a, there was no way to get an english translation of that thing right mm -hmm. so you did this thing how was that available like how, how did how did you get that as a consumer so um we there were ways to get roms back in the day even you know we was eventually i got a what was a cable modem right um there was like irc things like that like horrible methods where you had to wait in line you had to mm -hmm. have your internet on for like literal two days straight and if like your mom picked up the <laughs> phone and it like turned it off you'd lose your your place in the queue right um we we found we found ways um there were lots of sites you had to be really risky with your clicks you, you got really like you and like i call it internet street smarts where you knew which button was the actual download button and not the one that's going to infect yep. your computer horribly right <laughs> Um, so we, we did that and, and that also really helped with my, like, uh, my education of games. Okay. Cause like at one point I found some like ROM package that was literally every game up to like PS one. And so I would just open up my Nintendo emulator, and just go with that like alphabetically sometimes, you know, just like, what's this game? I've never seen this before. Mm. Let me check that out. Um, and I'm not saying piracy is good, uh, <laughs> at all. This is, you know, you have to know how the, the ecosystem works, but they're older games and we have no money. We couldn't find them. Right. Even if I wanted to, a lot of them, I yeah. like foreign Japanese games that I couldn't get. Um, I did go to Japan eventually and I went to Akihabara and I got to pick up a lot of, you know, square soft RPGs. And then when I brought them back, like to, in order to play them on the, the American super Nintendo, you actually could do this thing where if you, they had little pieces of plastic that stopped the games from fitting so you just uh, like whittled them down and then you can play japanese games interesting yeah yeah man I, so japan is a place that i definitely want to visit um i so i'm in that point in my life where there, there's a bunch of I, i'm i'm travel focused where i'm mm -hmm. like one to two times a year i want to do like a big trip and go somewhere and japan is one of those places so when i'm thinking about that i'm gonna hit you up and we're gonna sure. talk about where i should go what i should avoid what I need to do. <laughs> Definitely, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to get back there too, because they're just now recently letting people who don't have like any work related reasons in there. They're yeah. letting people like tourists come back now. So. I love it. So what, what got you into learning Japanese? Like what, what kind of took you down that path? Okay. So, um, it's kind of weird. Uh, it, it's not the traditional, I really liked anime. I wanted to play video games. <laughs> It was more um, more of the challenge. So when I was in high school, I took four years of Spanish because I live in South Florida, and you kind of have to know Spanish, right? Um, and they, for some reason, my school offered Japanese. And really? Like, this and is I, interesting. Yeah, that is wild. Japanese, sure. And then it was funny. Um, in Japanese one, a lot of students took it because they thought it would be an easy A, which was hilarious. They're like, oh, this will be easy. You just sit around, and then they all flunked out, right? Uh, then Japanese 2, 
we had an even smaller class. When I got to Japanese 3, it was me, my, me and my friend and like three other people in the library because they didn't have enough. You have to have at least like 10 students to get a classroom. So we're just in the library um, being taught. And then Japanese 4 was me and my friend in the closet, the janitor's closet with the teacher, the instructor. <laughs> And like, you know, in the middle of class, like the janitor would walk in and get like a mop and stuff like that and come back out. Are you serious? That's an actual yeah. thing? Like, Yes, that was an actual thing. <laughs> oh, man. And so, um, you know, Japanese was, it's a very hard language. I don't recommend learning it if you're, if you're someone who's not very self-motivated. Um, it's, it's very, very difficult. Um in fact, if you look at the, the U.S. military, they rank languages like how difficult they are to learn. It's a level four, I think, which is like the hardest to learn as a oh, native English speaker. Okay. Um, I think like, you know, easier ones is like like uh, Swedish, for example. You can learn Swedish in roughly a year if you're a native English speaker. All but, right. Did, um, you, did you see this post by Karis in the chat? What? She wants you to say, take, take another, another shot, shot and have me on your show again sometime, Jameson. Thank you for having me in Japanese. If you do that, I will take... An extra shot. I'm going to pour it right now. Uh, Jameson. You know, you got to say it in Japanese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jameson, mata, mata, mo ipai, shotto, nomimasho. You know, something like that. Uh, <laughs> and then thanks for having me. It's like, uh, what can I say? Sasoete, yeah. Sasoete, yeah. Sasoete kurete, arigato gozaimasu. Yeah. Now, like, thanks for inviting me. I need I need someone in the chat to confirm that. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously though, fifth shot. That's wonderful. I I I I love that. I love that you have spent that much time devoting to learning a different language. I I took two years of French in high school, and that was it. Like, that's the extent of my knowledge in another language, and I'm I'm a little sad about that because there's. I want I want to know other languages, but I'm just like the time and the effort and ADHD gets in the way. Like I don't know how to kind of do that. Um, it's it it's difficult, you know. Like as long as I've been studying Japanese, I I will never call myself fluent. I'll, I'm say I'm damn good for someone who's lived there a total of four months, right? Um, because I know that because I've been told that. But um, every day I find words that I don't know, right? And I find little nuance things that I don't know. And I keep trying, but um, I will say Japanese is harder because the whole kanji system, right? There's so many irregular readings that it ends up, there's a lot of memorization that eventually falls out of your brain. Like mm. even native Japanese speakers, right? I've had friends who come here um, to, to America and they stop writing the characters and they can't do something as simple as like uh, benkyo, the, the word for study, which is something you learn. It's like a level one kanji type thing, right? But mm -hmm. they forget how to write it because it, it's all uh, routine. You're getting into that habit, you know. Um, whereas you learn a, a language with a much easier alphabet, uh, you can retain it a lot better because it's more about thinking about the words and less about fighting the writing system. Because mm. you're definitely fighting the writing system in, in Japanese. But I will say, through doing that though, it made a lot of other linguistic things easier for me. So for example, when I lived in Japan for three months, um, I actually stayed with Fernando de la Cruz. Yeah. Yeah. I was, student. I was going to mention he used to, he was over there as someone who was teaching English as a second language. Right. Yeah. And so a buddy, we were a mutual friend of ours and me, we were going to go over to Japan through our, our, our college. We were going to study at their sister school mm -hmm. and just typical the luck that I have. 
we we canceled our our apartments and stuff like that we were all ready to move over there and then we went to check on it just to double check that we're good to go and they're like oh we actually don't have the budget to send anyone so we're not going to do it like you weren't going to tell us that so we already were ready to go to japan we we just said okay we're let's find a way over there ourselves we just found out fernando was going to be over there we stayed with him and just did like our own diy studying right so we literally went to bookstores and just bought grammar books and books for kids and i would sit there reading them I had a notebook with me anywhere I went where I saw a phrase or a word I didn't know, I'd write it down, um, tried to memorize stuff like that. You know, I just like total DIY. Like that's always been my, my thing, right? You're just like, I'll, f- I'll figure it out, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I can't rely on the system to help me, right? So I just have to go and, and do it on my own. Um, and And so... You know, when I came back, like I said, I was just immersed in Japanese and writing so many pages every day and, and memorizing all this stuff. I came back and I looked at music. I'm like, wait, music, there's 11 notes. And I'm cons- I've been, I just learned like 3000 kanji and I was intimidated by 11 notes. And like when there's chords, there's realistically about 12 chords or something like that too. I'm like, right. why was that such a problem? I can easily do this, right? Oof. So it made it much more easy. And then from that as well, other languages become uh, easier, right? So what happened was coming back home from that, uh, I had already learned 3,000 of those characters, which are also in Chinese. I was like at my school, I was like, hmm, they're offering Chinese. I'm going to go and take intermediate Chinese too without ever having studied Chinese before. And I got an A because I could read it. I just couldn't pronounce it. I already knew what it was saying, right? So it was like a related skill. And then from there, I just kind of went crazy at one point where um, I probably took like the Pimsleur one level of like every major world language. I learned to read and write a lot of the alphabets that they have, like, you know, um, Korean and Russian and Cyrillic and things like that. Well, Korean's Hangul, right? Um, I'm learning Greek right now, the mastering the uppercase and lowercase Greek alphabet. Uh, I want to learn like Thai, but it's a little too hard. The, the writing system's very very uh hard to write well you mentioned writing and one of the things i've heard a lot is it's it's easier to learn to speak a language than it is to write it is that is that is that generally true across the board depends on the language uh english yes because we have we don't pay attention to our own grammatical rules dude english is the worst like like it literally it is the worst language Mm mm-hmm it's very hard. Um, I always use when I hang out with like my international friends, I tell them proof that English is such a ridiculous language. I say China chef because it should be China chef or China chef, right? It's like, why is it so inconsistent? You know, if you look right. at Spanish, yeah, yeah. if they wanted you to pronounce it as China, they would put it in that way. If they wanted to pronounce it as China, they would change the letters. But English yeah. would keep the spelling from the language that we borrowed it from. It's just super frustrating. It's it's awful. Like. Mm-hmm. And and I'll I'll like be talking to my son and I'll be like, here's this word and it's pronounced this way. And he's like, why? And I'm like, because someone just decided that yeah. it should be said that it's not because it's written a particular way. It's because someone said that's how it's pronounced. You should see some of like the old English stuff or like Gaelic, right? Then like talking about that, I just found out it's not Gaelic. It's actually pronounced Gaelic. No. Right in Ireland. Yeah. No. Oh yeah, man. Check it out. Um, but look at some of those names where it's like, how do you, I don't, I don't remember how you say it. The one that looks like it's Siobhan. How do you say that one? Siobhan? Yeah, but it's not pronounced that way. It's like something really it's, simple. It, isn't it's, it? it's, it's like, wait, no, Siobhan. That's what you're talking about. 
Uh, is that the because there's another one where it's like it looks like something totally different and it's pronounced like Jack or something. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like there's no way they just told you that, that that's what that means. Like that doesn't actually use any rules of grammar. Like like the Eng- when it comes to the English language, there's guidelines that are ignored more often than they're utilized, and it is yep. incredibly frustrating. I before E except when we feel like it. Yeah. yeah. I before E except after C or E before I except after Y. And those don't even work together. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's just, it's very frustrating. Part of my frustration actually was led me to make an app about that. Uh, One of my games is called I before E. Interesting. Hmm. So, uh Oh, (laughs) GIF or GIF. What? (laughs) Oh, let me think. It's a gift to me. It's a gift. Like that, that but that's I, I just because GIF, of what I always I, said. <laughs> I say gift, but I know that the creator he said it was GIF, right? Yeah, but he's wrong. Because yeah. <laughs> like out of respect for him, I'll say GIF, but I, don't I can't. Know. I can't. It, it's it's a gift. Like it's mm-hmm. it's a gif and a JPEG. That's all I'm saying. Like that's that's, that's there, there's some words where based on where it sits in the sentence, I'll pronounce it with the, one of the different pronunciations just because in my head it's like chunked that way, you know? Yeah. Man, we have covered so many things that were outside of what I expected we would cover, and it makes me very happy. <laughs> oh, I'm down with that. I'm good with that. No, we we still got we still got 30 minutes left, and we've we've barely touched on like you, you and your path, and you as an individual. And so I'm right now wondering, should we dig into that or should we? wait and do a whole other episode about like kind of your journey because i feel like we've got an we got enough of that we could do a whole other two hour episode about kind of like your your path or do we want to start getting into it a little bit now what do you think i think we can take a another time to do that because i do have like a pretty long drawn out thing like i i practice with it because i do give a a speech at conventions and stuff about that very thing okay awesome I, i have a lot i could talk about sweet all right, so then that means let's 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 hold off on your personal journey and let's talk more about sure. you know other things. Um cuz I'm I'm li- I'm I'm fascinated like you so you you had this opportunity to learn Japanese in high school. Mm-hmm. Just I'm curious what what kept you with that? What what kept you kind of driven to to care about that past? Because for me in high school, two years of French, I went to France in high school, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I spent some time there. I got to kind of utilize what I learned. After that, though, it became an afterthought. And I, and I didn't kind of pursue that in any way. What for you made Japanese something that you kind of continued to pursue? Sure. Um, partially, it was stubbornness in a way, because at one point when I got to college, I decided I want to be uh, bilingual. I figured that's a good okay. skill to have. Yeah. Um, I didn't, I don't claim to have any mastery prior to that. So I was like, I want to be bilingual. I've been studying Japanese for four years. I might as well try this one. I'll go with that. Shouldn't have picked the hardest language to learn as a native English speaker, right? Um, spent lots and lots of hours. Uh, eventually at my school, um, there was an international uh, student department. And I went over there and made friends with some of the Japanese kids. And basically I would teach them English. They would teach me Japanese. We'd, we'd play a lot of poker together, you know? Um, and kind of just learning that way. Uh, and is, then is poker something that is common in Japan? 
No, but they okay. really they really liked it. No, I'm it. curious. Like that's that's really no, interesting no, no. to me. Uh, yeah. J- Japan has like mahjong. That's yeah, yeah, like yeah. One of the the things that they play a lot. Okay. Um, that's as far as gambling games. Uh, Magic the Gathering actually is pretty popular over there in like the the nerd culture at least. So a lot of the top players are Japanese. Tell me something that is super like ingrained in Japanese culture that that we kind of are like oh that's kind of something that is a niche here okay um hmm. i would say going with the flow not being an individual oh okay so it actually can get frustrating as a westerner because if when you talk to your friends they'll always defer i mean it can be good because you get to do what you want like and also a it's for social harmony, not necessarily what they believe, right? So there's a thing called honne versus tatemae. Tatemae is what you're expected to do. That's that's actually the better, the, the concepts of like soto and uchi. So like that means inside and outside or outside and inside. Um, but uh, in Japan, you have tatemae is how you're supposed to act in front of people. Honne is what you really feel. And so when you meet people you don't know and you're not good friends with them, you literally are expected to kiss their ass. And, and if they... Uh, are bad at something, you'll never tell them you're bad. You'll, you'll be like, oh, sugoi desu ne. You know, like, like, oh, jose desu ne. Like, you'll never actually give them an honest opinion about the thing. And so it kind of prevents people from growing. That's actually a problem a lot of Japanese pe- learners have. They go over there, everyone just tells them their Japanese is awesome, and no one corrects them if they say something wrong. Uh, like, oh, it's fine. Yeah, you're okay. But it's like, yeah, but I want to I wanna learn. Like, tell me what, what's wrong. And they're just like, no, it's fine. Because they feel it's bad to to kind of push people into that you know they don't want to hurt your indirect. feelings is it is it well, that kind of vibe no just in japanese it's always about being indirect you want to be as indirect as possible so japanese is like a very like chofuku it's like a redundant language where um you, you don't tell somebody even like so i went to a store and i was asking for something at the convenience store and they were out of it and they're like ah choto urikiri desu ne and i'm like Choto means a little bit, like, so it's a little bit sold out? What do you mean? Like, do you, do you have it? Like, how can it be a little bit sold out? That means you got one or two left, right? And they'll, they'll just tell you that everything has to be delivered in, like, a, a nice roundabout way of saying things. So they'll never straight up say, like, you're doing your job wrong. They're like, maybe you should study, like, or maybe you should look at the handbook or something like that. They'll not be like, listen here, man, you're, you're messing up. Like, we need you so, to do this. So what I'm hearing is passive aggressive. Is that... Oh, Okay. Yes. Okay. That's the entire the entire situation of Japan is passive aggressive. Okay. Until sometimes people will be so bothered by you, but they weren't doing a good job of explaining it to you that uh, they'll just blow up on you one day, and then they're just like red in the face and yelling like you you can't do this. Well, it's like you you, you never told me. So right? it, if if that happens, it sounds like you have missed the message, right? Like they they've tried to tell you mm-hmm. that that something about what you're doing needs to change and and you've kind of missed that right um in japanese it's like it's a phrase like kuki ga yomenai like you can't read the air like you read the atmosphere so they they put out that idea and you're supposed to tell by the way that they're like you know so if someone doesn't want to go somewhere it's like you're like hey let's go to the karaoke bar or whatever and you don't want they're like uh i heard that the prices went up you know like no one will ever just be like, no, we're not going to the karaoke bar. It's uh, like, uh, there's this other place. There's this. They're they're having a really cool thing going on over there. Like they they just can't be direct because it's considered rude. Unless so, like, you become really good friends with someone, then they can drop their guard and they can. That is literally 
how everyone where I grew up with in Kentucky talks. So mm-hmm. I'm already made to, to be in Japan. It sounds like, like everyone is passive like, aggressive culture, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Well, it's, that's true. Yeah. It's, it's a very similar thing to, to be honest. That's, that's really interesting. All right. Mm-hmm. Another so, thing is uh, Japanese love rules. Okay. So you breaking rules is like a really like people get really nervous that you're breaking a rule, even if it's something stupid that you don't think people should agree with right it's just like that's a rule you're supposed to do it um i had an ex-girlfriend where she would she I was dating a japanese girl in college and she was like wanted me to put my parking brake on in the car all the time and i'm like we're on flat ground it's an automatic i don't need to put my parking brake on she's like no you have to and i'm like what happens if i don't uh huh huh what? you know and she's like I, I don't know but you're supposed to put the parking brake on. i'm like i'm not gonna put it on <laughs> Because it's just that you're supposed to do what the things you're supposed to do, and you're not really supposed to question it. Um, and the thing that happens a lot of times where there's um, kind of uh, rough spots with, with foreign Westerners working with Japanese is if you come up with a better way to do something um, instead of the way that they want you to do it, they'll kind of just say, like, you don't understand the culture. They'll say that to you, like, oh, you're, you, know, you don't understand J- Japanese people or something like mm. that. You know, you're... I don't have the right, I'm not, the right word isn't coming to mind. It's not tradition, but there, there's a word for, for what you're talking about that, that I'm, I'm not coming up Some with of right it now. Is tradition. Uh, and a lot of things, Japan is very traditional. They're also very risk averse. So mm. in a country as like, you look at Tokyo, it's so futuristic or whatever, right? Most places are still cash only. You can't use a credit card. What? You can maybe use your phone. Right. So many times I, I can't use a credit card because there's a chance that that card could be stolen. Right. And then the, the company will get a charge back. Uh, so they'd like to use things that are a sure thing. So cash is a sure thing. Your phone is a sure thing. Um, and I've gotten in like risky situations where I had no money. Right. And I had to like I only had U.S. dollars once because I, I that's, another, that's a whole different thing. Um, I went to Tokyo Game Show. And I was I was in town, and I figured I don't need to cash my money out at the at the airport. So there'll be some bank that I can you know exchange U.S. dollars for yen for a better rate, one, right? Well, just to, to to do it. Yeah. There was one place in all of Tokyo that I could have done it. What? Um, yeah. And I so I had to when I was in certain areas traveling, I was out of money. I had to like pull out a hundred dollar bill and find anyone who I could tell was from the West and be like, "Excuse me, are you are you American? Like, I guess you." You have like an English accent uh, or an American accent. Uh, can I, I don't have any yen. Can I give you this money? And it seems like I'm like a scammer and it makes me feel all weird. You know? <laughs> Man, I see. And that's, that's the kind of stuff that I want to know about Japan. And you and I are going to have an offline conversation about this for when okay, I, yeah. when I plan that trip, because I, man, that that's the kind of stuff that terrifies me as, as a, as a traveler, because I have anxiety and I'm like, I want to know, like I want to have a comfort level, you know what I mean? Like I want to know that that wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, that I that I can cover that, you know, and that like yeah. like I have the money for it. I just want to know that that I can can do what I need to do while I'm trying to do this cool stuff in a place I've never been before. Right. Yeah, uh, Japan is a great place to travel because it's super safe, and that's another thing because they love rules so much no one commits crimes for the most part. There are, it's not saying there's no crime, but uh, compared to other countries you can travel to, I'd say it's, it's a really great place to travel. Um, oftentimes, like there's a, the big reputation of Japan is if you drop your wallet, you'll come back. It'll be in the same spot. It'll be at the, the Koban, which is the, the police uh, spot. Is that real? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, 
I have some stories I could tell Come you, on. Mike. Uh, like, but for the most part, yeah, like, uh, like so much so in the culture, right? In, in a busy place like Tokyo, if you're at a Starbucks and you want to save your seat when you go to the bathroom, you put your wallet or your phone on the table. What? I wouldn't do that in class. You know what I mean? No. <laughs> like, like we like, wouldn't. No. Like either oh, yeah. one of those things. They're not out of my sight for a moment. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's why I feel bad because a lot of my Japanese friends have come to America and gotten scammed. They've gotten robbed. Like yeah. one friend had like his wallet kind of sticking out of his pocket. Some guy literally just ran up behind him, grabbed it and just kept running. Yeah. You know, uh, because they're so used to being in a nice environment where they don't have to worry about that. And that that's another. United I, States I sucks, tire. man. Like yeah. <laughs> I, I got a, I got a flat tire on my way to Miami and broke down in vice city basically. Um, and with my Japanese girlfriend, who's never been in a bad part of town, I was like, okay, this is a weird situation. Don't make eye contact. Don't say anything. Just speak Japanese. So they think you don't know English, blah, blah, blah. And it was, it was, it was one of those places, you know, you can tell when you walk into a convenience store and they put like the, 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 the convenience store guy, the clerk is behind plexiglass. Yep. That's your first tell. Every, every single item is behind the plexiglass, <laughs> even the chips. The entire store was behind plexiglass. <laughs> uh, so I was like, this is the most un-Japanese situation for her to be in. I felt like so bad. You know what I mean? But it was um, also a really good learning experience. Right. And, and that's the kind. So that example flipped is what I want to know about Japan before I go there, where I'm like, mm-hmm. if I if I have a, a worst case scenario, what are yeah. my like real expectations? Because like when when people talk to me about going to other places or like you don't want to get these kind of taxis, you're going to get human trafficked if you do this, like like that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I don't mm-hmm. I don't want to go anywhere because I don't know that stuff. So Japan does have some of that, but in reality, it, you have to go looking for it. You know what I mean? And you shouldn't be looking for it over there. Uh, <laughs> there there's a lot of other things. Like uh, the best way I describe American culture versus Japanese culture is like everyone in America, whether you do these things or not, you know someone who's been to jail, you know someone who does drugs, right? Or has done drugs. Japan, no one does. And if they did, they wouldn't admit it. Completely different. Like, they well, don't even think about that. Also, you know I mean? tattoos, right? I, yep. I just recently learned that, that visible tattoos in Japan is not a good thing. Uh, they they ease up on that for foreigners because they understand it's different culture. But in Japanese culture, yes. Like a Japanese person with a tattoo, it kind of implies that they have... Yakuza, right? Like underground, well, <laughs> underground stuff because like, obviously they're not employable normally, right? So they to get a tattoo implies that you must find other ways to make your money, you know? And so that's why they don't let people. It's not the tattoo itself. It's the fact that like, well, actually, that's not true. Sometimes it is. I saw a, a Japanese version of Cops where a guy was at the beach with his tat- with his shirt off and he had tattoos and the cop came over and made him put his shirt on. He's like, but I'm at what? the beach. He's like, sorry, it's, dis- it's, it's disturbing the other people. Wait, there's a Japanese version of Cops? <laughs> yeah, I don't remember what it's called. I was watching it once though, on like YouTube. <laughs> hey, God. There's that's something a- like that. Oh, my wife's I got to make a note of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's hilarious to me. All right, man. We, <laughs> I did not expect that we would talk about Japan as much as we have. And I like, I'm here for it. Like I said, because that's a place that I want to visit. So, uh, but I'm curious what, okay, let, let's, let's, uh, let's, uh, kind of level this a bit as, as a first time visitor to Japan, as a game lover, 
someone that's over there that wants to visit and kind of like experience the culture, what's kind of like the, the, like the, the main tips that come to your mind as far as like, definitely do this. Don't do this. Okay. Um, I think they still have it. If you have the means, there's a thing called the JR rail pass for, uh, visitors who are staying for less than 90 days. You can get, a uh, one week, two week, or three week uh, pass where you can ride the trains for free. It's like uh, once you buy the pass, you can go anywhere. So you could use that to travel and see the whole country. Like we literally went from like um, uh, Nagasaki. The next day we were up in Hokkaido, which is like all the way on the other side of the, the country. Okay. Um, that's a really good deal. Um, if you don't have hotels, Hostels are actually kind of expensive. Same with like manga. People are like, oh, I'll stay at a manga kisa, like manga kisa ten. It's like a manga hostel. Um, they kind of those are a little bit pricey too. If you actually go to the train station, you ask them if they have any hotel deals or wait, wait people they know who would give hotels. That's where we found the best prices. Um, Kyoto, you definitely want to check out. Kyoto's the scenic Japan, like that type of Japan where you see in all the postcards of like the geisha type stuff and the temples and the you'll get four seasons down there, you know. Um, and then in Tokyo, you can you can do like a week in Tokyo. Uh, if you like food, everywhere in Japan has great food. Um, they're all foodies, like it's foodie culture basically, because so much of J Japanese culture is you always have to do your best at all times, right? So it's like part of the culture is like obviously your food has to be top notch or you can't survive in that that culture you know um uh <laughs> did you see karis's comment tell yeah. the story of when you party with the yakuza what uh i partied with a yakuza one guy <laughs> um so i was there for i was in osaka for a game festival i can't remember which one maybe it was bit summit something like that um and I met this guy. He was actually an American guy, but he spoke the best Japanese I've ever seen for a foreigner. Like he worked at like a law firm and stuff like that. And he could talk legal Japanese. And so he found this really, really local place to eat. And we walk in and it's like probably the first time foreigners have ever walked in this place. Like the whole place is <laughs> quiet. And they're like, uh-oh. And then we start speaking Japanese. We're like, oh, cool. You guys, oh, that's awesome. You guys are Japanese. So everyone wanted to talk to us. And this guy sits down and... Not everyone, but a lot of times you can tell who's Yakuza in Japan because they are a little bit more, less reserved. How about that? They're a little yeah, more yeah. cocky. You know gotcha. what I mean? And this guy's like talking to me. He's like, Orewa, Japanese mafia da yo. And he's like, I'm the Japanese mafia. And I'm like, you know, I'm just messing around. I'm like, Orewa, Italian mafia da yo. Like, I'm in the Italian mafia. And like, we, we had all this like back and forth and it was just a fun night. But you knew that like, I probably wouldn't want to be invited to that guy's house or something. But it, it was fun. Man, that's wait. So, but but what what happened? Like like what like what what did you do? Oh, we just drank and ate food. You know, just hung out there. Like everyone was real nice to us when they found out that we understood Japanese and were trying to respect the culture. Right? Is that? I assume that that's a big deal, right? When 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 a a traveler comes in and you're looking at him, you're like, oh, this guy has no idea. Oh wait, he he's put in the effort to kind of understand mm -hmm. our culture. That has to be a big deal. Well, because it's also very rare, right? Uh, I say America has a very skewed outlook on Americans have a very skewed outlook on life because yeah. we have a very uh, heterogeneous society, right? Where you look at someone and you, you just assume they speak English. It's yep. not like you saw someone with a different skin color and you're like, Oh, they must be from this country. Right. In Japan, it's the opposite where 
they look at me and they assume there's no way that guy knows Japanese. And there's right. sometimes situations where they'll, I'll literally talk to them in Japanese. They'll be like, oh, sorry, no English. And I'm like, Nihongo de shaberu. You know, and they're like, oh, no English. And like, they, they can't, their mind can't comprehend that <laughs> someone who doesn't look Japanese is speaking Japanese. Right. So they think like you're speaking mumbly English or something. Um, and so uh, that's a frustration thing, like going to a restaurant and having every single employee come up to me and say, ah, no English menu. And then you tell them, oh, it's okay, I can read Japanese. And then the next one comes up because they don't know the other person talked. And they're like, ah, no English menu. And it's like, <laughs> it just becomes really frustrating after a while. But they're trying to be nice, right? But it's because they don't, they don't know the culture. Like, you got to yeah. understand, Japan is 98% Japanese. When the, the city we lived in was like 100% Japanese. We were oh, the only wow. foreigners in our town. And every place we walked, people would point at us and be like, oh, guy, kokujin, no, no, gaijin, gaijin. <laughs> you like Bigfoot like, walking around, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, they were like, you know, I'd be harassed by the police because they're like, why are, why are you here? Why aren't you in Tokyo? Like, what would you, what do you have to do? What business do you have in this town? I was like, well, I'm staying with a friend, you know. Uh. Um, a lot of those type of things. And so it, it's like, you know, they get impressed. They, they ask you all the time, oh, can you eat with chopsticks? I'm like, yeah, we have chopsticks in America. <laughs> like, they don't they don't know that. Like, do they have sushi in, in America, right? So sometimes they're, they're oh, wow. That's uh... <laughs> isolated. Yeah, like they know about their culture and not so much about how American culture actually is. So you get an opportunity to be a little bit of an ambassador at that point, right? And then talk to them about what it's like, Japanese culture is like in America? Uh, Maybe, I guess. Yeah, I've had people, it's funny, like, People will ask me random questions. I remember while I was sitting at this one Okonomiyaki place and this kid was asking me like, he, he saw Breaking Bad because it's popular over there as well. He's mm. like, Breaking, Breaking Bad though. And he's like, is, are, does everyone do drugs like that? <laughs> I had to like explain to him. It's like, well, there are people, yeah, but it's not as popular as in that show, you know? That's... <laughs> That's a really interesting perspective because that's something that is such a small portion of our population, right? Like, mm -hmm. That is into that kind well, of mess, see, you know? Right? And they yeah. see like guns and stuff. It's like, do you have a gun? Like, you know, what do, do, do regular <laughs> people have guns? Like, yeah, actually they do. But um, most people aren't going to pull them out, you know? <laughs> Man. Because that's, that's another thing too is like, you know, guns are illegal in Japan unless you have a very, very good reason for one. Yeah. Um, so most people have never seen one or been around them um ah if only <laughs> and then and then there's there's you know uh a personal personal what do you call touching people oh uh, they don't do that right there there's some parents who don't even hug their kids you know have never done it because yeah. it's just it's about rigidity and being responsible and i don't know um, and there'd be like friends where when I was in America, I could give them a hug when I saw them. And when I see them in Tokyo, I go to give them a hug and they freeze up. They're like, stop, stop, stop. You're making me really awkward. Oh, you interesting. Know? Because the, everyone else is looking at them and like talking like, oh, what are they doing? Like that's, don't do huh. that in public. Yeah. Man. All right. We just got a few minutes left. I want to, I want to give an opportunity here for you to tell people if they want to get in touch with you, what's your preferred method for that? How would you like people to reach out to you? Sure. You can reach me on uh, uh, email, uh, brian at astrocrow.com, A-S-T-R-O-C-R-O-W. Um, I don't really use social media that much, but we do have Astrocrow Twitter. We've got an Instagram. Uh, that's about it. If it's not Astrocrow, it's Astrocrow Games, because sometimes we had to put the games after it. Uh, that's really it, yeah. All right. And, all right, so... 
you, we're definitely going to, we'll, you and I will talk after this to, to find out a time for you to come back on the show. But man, this has been awesome. I, I love nights where we don't touch on almost anything that I had originally planned. So, so don't feel like this is any kind of a bad thing. This has been an absolutely amazing night. I appreciate you coming on. You've got some absolutely awesome perspective and, and thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. And I'll definitely come back on again. Awesome. We'll talk about that later. I'm going to jump off and say my goodbyes and uh, we'll find a time to do that soon. For sure. All right, man. Later. All right. Bye guys.